From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. For our final show of 2021, we'll send you into the new year on a musical note. I'll sit down with Alicia Sweeney of Indie 1023 to chat about her favorite songs of the year and the artist we all should know now. I would say he's a huge breakout star here in Colorado, definitely in Denver, and soon to be discovered elsewhere. And I'm not wrong on these things. (laughs) (laughs) Then, Janis Joplin, The Doors, Jimi Hendrix. They all played a short-lived but enormously influential Denver nightclub. And later in the show, how music can open a conversation about emotions. Music can set the stage for a spooky story, or make us feel uneasy, or give us a way to talk about our deepest fears. The co-creators of CPR's music appreciation podcast, Music Blocks. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give at CPR.org. Click on Support CPR. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. On this last day of 2021, we're focusing on the thing that got many of us through this year, music. With everything going on, we popped in our earbuds or turned up the radio and found solace in music. On today's show, we'll hear an interview from earlier this year about how Denver became the epicenter of rock and roll in the late 60s, plus a CPR podcast that helps teachers explore the wonders of music with their students. But first, let's start with the top indie hits of Colorado's music scene this year with host and local music director of Indie 1023, Alicia Sweeney. Hey, Alicia. Hey, Nathan. So you've brought some of your favorite releases from 2021 that you think people should hear right now. And I got to be honest, I had a sneak peek of your list and I've been listening to these songs all week and they're really good. So uh, where do you want to start? First of all, that makes me so happy, so thank you. And, well, where to start? Our music scene is so eclectic across the state, and what we play ranges from a lot of, like, indie pop and indie rock to hip-hop and even folk. And, well, let's start off with some folk music. This is a song from Ellsworth. It's Growing Pains. Can you see me through the window? I haven't A.K.A. Megan Ellsworth, released her debut solo album this year. Her voice is so dexterous. You know, it switches between registers. And I wanted to share that this song was featured in the new season of the Disney Plus show Diary of a Future President. Maybe some listeners have watched this with their children. The song plays during the credits of season two, episode eight, and it's a perfect fit. That's Growing Pains by Ellsworth. 
Love that song. Now, this next artist is on the complete opposite end of the musical spectrum. You say he's Denver's biggest breakout star of the year and Colorado's equivalent to Lil Nas X? Oh, yes, he is. (laughs) He is subversive and unique, just like Lil Nas X, and proudly queer, and not just a musician. This is Neptune. He's a model, a dancer, an actor, a director, a producer. And for me, I would say he's a huge breakout star here in Colorado, definitely in Denver, and soon to be discovered elsewhere. And I'm not wrong on these things. <laughs> so the song we're going to hear is called White Pony. Uh, this one just might be considered the local song of the year, too. It certainly is with us Indy 1023 staffers. the claps. It's just one of those genre-bending bangers that makes you want to get up and dance. That is Neptune with White Pony, and he is carving out a lane in Denver's music scene, one that is influenced by his upbringing in the Baptist church, bringing that gospel into his genre-bending sound. And I would be remiss if I didn't say what Neptune says, Nathan. He says, don't forget the three when you're writing his name. So that's N3P. T-U-N-E. It is such an interesting way to spell that name, but uh, there it is, Neptune with White Pony. Uh, 2021 was also a super big year for your next pick. Tell us about the Velveteers. This is a band that I've loved for a long time, fronted by Demi Dimitro. And despite lockdown, it's been quite the year for the Velveteers. They had a chance to go on a national tour this fall right as they were releasing their debut album called Nightmare Daydream, and they released it on Easy Eye Sound Records, which might not mean anything to most, but for Mm -hmm. a big indie music fan like me, this is the label of Dan Auerbach, who is one half of the Grammy-winning rock blues group The Black Keys. Oh. Yeah. And so he also produced this album for them at his studio in Nashville. This group has always been on the verge of something big, and I'm so happy to share a little bit of their story with you guys today. I love that line. You think you're the charmer, but you're really the snake. The band is the Velveteers. The song is Charmer and the Snake. Alicia, I'm so glad this next song made your list. It just gets in my head, and I've been finding myself humming to it in the kitchen. Right? This is a song from Los Mococetes, the beloved Latin band. They finally put out their anticipated debut, Mucho Gusto, this year. And we just love this song. It's Tacos. 
Los tacos de mi abuelita saben bien chingón Los llena con su carnita y muchísimo limón Cilantro y luego cebolla hechos con amor Y luego cuando termina grita ¡Viva México! Now, is this song really just about tacos, or, or does it have a deeper meaning? Not just about tacos. There is a message celebrating that cultural importance of food in your life and keeping the spirit alive of where their families come from. But you know you can't have tacos without the chile, ¿verdad? Chile, chile, chile. And I will tell you, Nathan, I did ask the band whose grandmother makes the best tacos, but I didn't get a definitive answer. But, you know, I truly would love to try each and every one. Tacos by Los Mocochetes. All right. Your next pick makes me think of Erica Badu or Lauren Hill, two artists I simply adore. Oh, yeah. This is Colorado's Zainab. She has a great story. She's a first-generation American. She has Sudanese parents, and she just creates music that embraces sounds from all over the world. And I love this song in particular out this year. It's Catch Me If You Can. Let's get it now. Woo! Yeah! So I mentioned that she's first-generation American and her parents are Sudanese. Well, she was abroad at the beginning of 2020, writing and recording her album in the Middle East and North Africa. And then the global lockdown happens. So she's stuck overseas. So what started as, you know, like a month-long trip abroad, seven months overseas. And, you know, she says while she was away from Denver for so long during this uncertain time, she leaned into it and says that in each of those countries, she wrote, produced and performed songs that were inspired by her travels. And you can hear it in the production, especially in that song. She also sang and rapped in English and Arabic throughout the album as well. As we've been hearing, there was a lot of great Colorado music that came out this year. How was 2021 for fans of live music? How has that scene been recovering from the pandemic, which, of course, keeps going and going and going? Well, I'm so glad you're curious about this, because this is a question that I've been asking the local scene over this past year. And, you know, when summer rolled around, there was a lot of hope. Live shows were beginning to happen again. Fans seemed ready to go out. Bands were ready to take the stage and feel that energy and connect with a live audience again. And I don't blame them because I myself was getting a little fatigued by watching Zoom concerts. And so it was really great to see venues open again. And, you know, Denver has such a vibrant live music scene. And for a while this year, it really felt like we were able to safely resume the live music experience just like before. And live music is still happening, even in winter. But venues and bands are just being a little bit more cautious right now. Okay, back to some music now. Uh, The next artist on your list actually was a guest during our recent Colorado Matters holiday extravaganza. Tell us why Naoma made your list. Well, another local treasure that has a growing fan base, not only across Colorado, but the Americas, North and South America. 
She is originally from Cuenca, Ecuador, and her, alongside Danny Pauta, the group's founder, producer, and bassist, they moved to Denver in 2018. Their first single from 2017, Young, hit the top of the Ecuadorian charts back then, and now in 2021, this just blows my mind. They have amassed over a million streams just on Spotify. And I love mm. this infectious song, Fixion. It's made my best of 2021 singles list, and it just shows their continued growth and success as a Colorado band to watch. Naoma. We have time for just one more, so who's going to close us out? Uh, let's close out with Zembu. Originally from Seattle, now based in Fort Collins, a wonderful queer artist. And her song Mixed explores the complexities of being mixed race and reconnecting with her Japanese ancestry. And I hope you find this as beautiful as I do. 9 Magazine, named one of the top local musicians to watch in 2021 by 303 Magazine. And that's just a few of her accolades. And, you know, I grew up in Fort Collins, so it always brings me extra joy when I discover wonderful music from northern Colorado. Alicia, thanks so much for joining us. It's been super great listening to music with you this New Year's Eve. You're welcome. Alicia Sweeney is host and local music director of Indie 1023. You can find her list of 2021 favorites at CPR.org. In the 1960s, Denver was arguably in cowtown mode, except for when it became an epicenter of rock and roll, a destination for the likes of The Doors, Janis Joplin, The Grateful Dead, and Jimi Hendrix. This Camelot of sound existed in a nondescript building on the outskirts of town. It's like the summer of love never ended in Frisco. It just moved east to the family dog. The Family Dog, a hippie music club on Evans Avenue, was around for less than a year. 
but turned Denver into a musical destination. There's a new documentary about the club's supernova of an existence from September 1967 to July of 68, titled The Tale of the Dog. Ryan Warner spoke in October with filmmakers Scott Montgomery and Dan Obarski, who started by describing the space of the family dog. It was a magical place by all accounts. It was one of a kind. We didn't have anything like that in Denver. It was a full-on liquid light show, one of the first ones in the country. You had the psychedelic poster artists, the great ones of the era, doing posters for the show. You had this amazing fluorescent floor that glowed under black lights of the family dog uh, logo. And you had the greatest bands, the rock and blues bands of all time playing there. There was probably between 500 and 1,000 people there at any given time. Yeah, well over the stated capacity, it's fair to say. <laughs> That's right. And it's amazing, the stars who performed at The Dog, uh, as it was affectionately known. Um, besides the acts that we've already mentioned, Buffalo Springfield, which of course included Neil Young, Van Morrison, Chuck Berry. Dan, how did it become such a happening place? Well, it started with Barry Fay taking a tape of a DU band called Eighth Penny Matter, uh, out to San Francisco to meet with Chet Helms, who is a legendary figure in the hippie scene around the Avalon Ballroom. And he convinced uh, Chet and Bob Cohen to open up what was essentially an Avalon Ballroom in Denver. And like you said, in one of the most unlikely places at 1601 West Evans, that's Evans and Pecos. Uh, and it all went from there. Uh, Barry Fay, the noted and late concert promoter, a mystique surrounds the family dog. This is Paul Epstein, owner of Denver's Twist and Shout Records from the film. Here's one of the most important parts about the dog and why it is so incredibly mysterious and interesting. There's no, other than the posters, there's nothing. There is a Doors concert, uh, bad quality. There's a Mother's concert in fair quality and a couple other little bits and pieces of audio history that exist. But unlike the Fillmore, the Avalon, the Carousel, the Matrix, the Grandy, where there are hundreds of tapes of all the great bands playing there, it's like, what happened? There's no tapes of the dog. Nor are there many photographs. I mean, I can only imagine how hard that was, making a documentary. Scott, what's your take on the lack of documentation? Was it, like, just not in the hippie ethos? I want to be clear when I use the term hippie. That's a term of, of art in this film. But go ahead, Scott. The counterculture, as we sometimes call it, too. You know, one of the things that we always forget nowadays when everybody has a camera on their phone is that back then only a few people had cameras. And you look at the photos from the 60s counterculture, and it's by the same handful of photographers who were there on the scene. Mm. Uh, Dan Fong is one of them. Um, and he had said he had taken photos of the dog, but they were long lost. So some photos existed, um, but it was also an era that was just less photographed. And it was a smaller place than, say, the, the ballrooms that Dan mentioned out in San Francisco that were better recorded and better documented. So it's maybe not surprising, but it's horrifically disappointing, and it made it hard to make a film. Right. But now I'm thinking, if there were photos, you know, maybe in someone's basement lurks a stack of them. We have followed 
uh, a number of said leads. Oh, I've got some in a storage container and we've <laughs> never found any results. We're willing to go clean up people's storage containers, find photos. So there's always the hope. But I can say after six years, no, it's been six years and the only three photos uh, are the ones that are, are really, unfortunately, <laughs> not super usable in the film. Oh, okay. We're putting out an all points bulletin for photos of the dog and just <laughs> yes, re- reach out to Colorado Matters. Film. <laughs> film. Yeah, right. Janice Joplin serves as a sort of rock and roll bookend for the dog. She's there at its opening and at its closing. Let's listen. Janice was up in the green room and of course she was belting back the uh, Southern Comfort and stuff. And I remember getting up saying, let's give the bastards a show. When I saw her sing that first time at the Family Dog, it made me cry. I mean, that woman, she made me cry. There are so many voices in this film, a great deal of like institutional knowledge when it comes to the Denver music scene. Scott, Dan, did you feel the clock ticking to preserve these stories? Did we ever... That's- that is exactly why we did this. You know, Scott and I got together six years ago and uh, Scott was doing a poster show on the Denver dog posters. Uh, he was the only other guy I had known that knew anything about this place. And I grew up in Denver, never heard about it until I was in my thirties. Uh, and we said, you know what, let's do something about this. This history is uh, being lost. You know, it started out as an idea for a, you know, an article or a book. And to your point, people started dying from that era. And we said, we got to get these people on camera. Oh, you know, let's do a documentary. (laughs) You know, we were just a couple of guys had absolutely no experience. And through sheer enthusiasm and naivete, we started calling around. You know, you just start with one person and it leads to another. I mean, you're, you're journalists. You know how this works. People came out of the woodwork. And we're talking people in their 70s and 80s who, you know, couldn't tell us enough Uh, and with enough uh, excitement about this place that they had been to 50-something years before. Scott? Yeah, as we sort of say in the movie, without the photos and the film, the story resided in sort of the archive of individual memory. It was Mm -hmm. people's memories we needed to piece it together, and they were dropping like flies. And the, the desperation of the immediacy of capturing this history now while we could is really, as Dan said, what prompted us to make the film, because only through interviews could the story be captured at this point. And so only through film could it really be told. As Dan alluded to, neither of you had made a film prior to this. Uh, Dan, you work in healthcare. Scott, you're an art history <laughs> art history professor at DU, a six-year project. And uh, Dan, I gather this project began in part because of a conversation you had with your parents about growing up in what you indeed thought was a, a dusty cow town where nothing cool happened. What's this story? Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, you know, my parents are from New York City. My mom saw the Beatles' first U.S. show. They had this great kind of 60s experience uh, with that music. And, you know, I grew up down here in the tech center, and there was nothing going on in the 80s and then in the early 90s. And that 60s culture was still reverberating you know, those waves were still crashing uh, over us. And that was our music, too, because that FM classic rock format never went away. 
we just felt like we had been left behind. Our social studies teachers were talking about how great the 60s were. <laughs> everybody, our parents, everybody talked. And we're just, you know, hanging out in the fields here going, God, this place is so lame. So when I saw a picture of Jim Morrison, again, in my 30s, uh, playing Rush at DU at the Student Union, I mean, I, I elevated like I couldn't. I was so excited. And that kind of started it for me. The tales of Jim Morrison at the dog are just <laughs> um, I'm, I'm without a word to describe it. But I, I guess there's just a kind of howl cry that he does on stage at one point. There's a lot of things he does on stage. <laughs> um, and and it's, it's amazing how when we interviewed people, certain shows and certain performers really seem to resonate with many people. And the Doors performances were one of the ones that were most regularly referenced. While The Family Dog was obviously a very sound-heavy endeavor, its legacy does live on through rock posters created for each show. Scott, again, you're an art historian, and you argue these are world-class pieces. Give me Absolutely. an ex- yeah, give me an example that illustrates that. I think that in many ways, the poster that Bob or Raphael Schneff designed for the Doors at DU that we used had him repurposed for the movie poster is one of the great examples of this art movement that comes out of San Francisco. Um, just you, you wanted a specific example. I think that's a good, vibrant one. It has many of the traits of this art movement that originates in San Francisco, the sort of pliant dynamic lettering, bold color, strong dynamic line. Uh, It was a very clearly defined style. Uh, And I argue that it was an art movement. And these posters from Denver all came from this San Francisco environment. And we have a couple real winners that were made for Denver. Yeah, and they often integrate existing imagery, often Old West imagery. Right. Well, and you have two sort of iterations of the Old West. You have kind of the cowboys and outlaws, which fit the counterculture identification of being outlaws. You also have the appropriation of Native American imagery, which the counterculture very closely identified with, particularly in terms of preserving nature uh, and living at one in harmony with the world. But they also identified with Native Americans as a people oppressed by the mainstream. Well, indeed, not everyone shared the free love ethos. They say every every great story needs a villain. And in the tale of the dog, that would seem to be John Gray, a Denver police officer who was tasked with keeping an eye on this venue and who certainly made his presence felt. How do you feel about the hippie movement, about hippies in general? Do you, do you believe that they're, uh, they're bad for Denver? I think generally, I don't think they're any good for the community, no. You quoted uh, somewhere saying you believe that, uh, that the youth is corrupted by the, by the whole hippie movement. Is that correct? I'd have to go along with that, yes. I'd have to say that I believe that that's true. Well, that's archival footage, but you actually spoke with uh, an elder Gray for the documentary. Dan, what were your impressions of him? You know, we went in there thinking, we had basically heard from the so-called hippie side and the appreciators of the family dog, and we had heard what a bad guy John Gray was. Um, and when we finally talked to him, it kind of opened up another window for us into what was going on at that time. And John was more than willing to talk to us. He was a really, not, he was a lovely guy. He hadn't changed his mind about anything, but 
he just came from a different era. And when we saw it through his eyes, we said, oh, I guess you can kind of see where he was coming from. You know, he had the backing of the mayor. He had the backing of all kinds of parents because all of a sudden these people who had fought in Korea and you know, World War II are watching their kids dropping acid and dressing funny and living in these communal settings. And it, it freaked him out. And, you know, he was probably uh, a jerk at times, <laughs> but he wasn't the bad guy per se that we had built up in our imaginations about him. I mean, there are newspaper clippings. I think that Gray provided in the film thanking him for stopping the hippie scourge. So there were certainly people in Denver at the time who were grateful for his mission. The tension between the hippies and law enforcement comes to a head in October 1967 when Denver police arrested the members of the band Canned Heat at a hotel following one of their appearances at the Family Dog. Uh, The experience was later immortalized in a song, My Crime. I went to Denver late last fall I went to do my job Yeah, I didn't break any law We worked a hippie place Like many in our land They couldn't bust a place And so they got the band Cause of police in Denver Oh, they don't want them long hairs hanging around The band members say they were set up by Denver police. Gray denies it in the film. And there were long-term ramifications. To pay legal fees, Canned Heat ended up losing publishing rights to their music, uh, which included a number of lucrative hits. You know, I think of going up the country, bang what you wanna go. Is it fair to say, Scott, that that was really the beginning of the end for the family dog? Yeah, fair to say. The beginning of the end may have started a little earlier when there was extra surveillance and pressure. The Canned Heat bust the timing is sort of curious. It comes right after a restraining order against John Gray is granted. And then the next thing you know, Can't Heat is busted. So there's this amazing, it comes to a head right there. It's been brewing since they opened. Uh, but at that moment, it really was the beginning of the end. And the San Franciscans get caught up in the legal matters and they begin to want to pull out. And by the end of the year, Chet Helms and the San Francisco family dog actually pull out of Denver and it carries on for half of 1968, essentially run by locals, including Barry Fay. Barry Fay, again, the concert promoter behind so many of the epic concerts at Red Rocks, for instance. Dan, how would you describe the club's lasting influence? I mean, I've been describing it as, you know, short-lived in terms of its doors being opened as a supernova, but the impact just seems indelible. I think you're right. Uh, And, you know, we went into this just loving the idea of what the family dog was, but we didn't really have an agenda. And everybody to a person without us leading them to that answer said, oh, that's where it all started. There's no question. You had small clubs, the Exodus and the Cave, and you had some local talent, but that was a national scene that was brought to Denver They had never seen anything like it. And it really was, by all accounts, a pivotal moment in the city's history. And to your point, Barry Fay, it started his trajectory. And Barry was very much a businessman. And he used that as his starting point. And he went on to 
become one of the biggest rock promoters in the world. I would just say the family dog sort of, as we talk about in the film, provided this sort of nexus for the counterculture to come together in Denver. And in some ways, it provided in a small scale for Denver what the great human being did in San Francisco as the first sort of public iteration of the sheer numbers of the counterculture. And it gave them permission to stick together. And so this is why I think the dog really was a watershed in Denver's evolution. Scott Montgomery and Dan Obarski are the filmmakers behind The Tale of the Dog about the short-lived but influential rock and roll club in Denver, The Family Dog. They spoke with Ryan Warner in October. The documentary is streaming on a number of platforms right now, including Apple TV, iTunes, and Amazon. Still to come, music's ability to pry our emotions loose. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. December 1914. In Denver, 10-year-old David Sturgeon is too sick to join his family downstairs around their Christmas tree. His father, an electrician, has an idea. Paint some light bulbs, green and red. String them in a long circuit around a pine his son can see from his bedroom and keep the tree lit through the night. People came from all around town to see the first electrified outdoor Christmas tree. And the next December, neighbors added lights to their own trees and homes. In the 1920s, Denver's mayor allowed a light display on City Hall. By the 1950s, this annual municipal project required 25,000 bulbs and 17 miles of wiring. It's a tradition that continues, including the stipulation that the city and county buildings stay lit in a colorful cacophony of cheer well into January to greet the stock show coming to town. A Colorado Postcard from Colorado Public Radio. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Nothing connects us to our emotions quite like music, right? It's a power a new CPR podcast harnesses. Each episode of Music Blocks is about five minutes long. Teachers can use it in classrooms. People of all ages can listen on their own. As CPR's Luis Antonio Perez puts it in the trailer. This isn't your parents' music appreciation podcast. It's current, multicultural, and diverse. Perez hosts and produces Music Blocks with Rebecca Romberg. Professor Carla Aguilar directs music education at Metropolitan State University in Denver and worked on the podcast as an education advisor. They spoke in September with Ryan Warner. Professor, only about half of high schoolers in Colorado take any art classes, although most schools offer those classes. When it comes to music education, what are some of the barriers for students, first off? Well, I think some of the barriers are interest, I'll be honest. I think some students are interested in um, ensemble music like band, choir, and orchestra, and we're so happy that they have the opportunity to participate. But there's other kinds of um, opportunities to engage with music that they want, like listening or writing or creating. And I think that if we 
had opportunities to have more of that happening in, in high schools, that there might be more interest in participating and learning about music from these different perspectives. Thank you for talking about listening, because I'm, <laughs> I'm someone who so identifies with that. I really didn't enjoy playing instruments, despite the fact that my mother uh, forced me to play piano and tried to get me to play trumpet. But I love to listen to music, and it seemed like the only offering was ever to play it. Would you reflect on that? Yes, I think that is a gap in our opportunity to engage with lots of different kinds of students that we tend to focus more on the performance aspects as like what counts as music education when exactly what you just said, Ryan, like there are so many students who are interested in listening to music and understanding what they're listening to in lots of different ways and creating music and composing music. And so I think there are some opportunities that we have as music educators, music teachers, music consumers to sort of start thinking about what we can do to engage in music in those different ways. Enter Music Blocks, this new podcast from Colorado Public Radio. And how do you think, Professor, a podcast could help create that kind of relationship, especially using emotion? When we started conceptualizing this, just thinking about ways for teachers to bring in some listening for a a short amount of time during a class, whether that's during a music appreciation class or another academic class, like a social studies class or an English class or another ensemble class, having the students listen to music and talk about those particular things during the classes. I think that emotions with ideas around social and emotional learning have really surfaced during the pandemic and getting students and teachers opportunities to share and talk about how music has supported them through the COVID crisis, as well as like things that they're thinking about just in general in their life. I think this having an opportunity for listening can really help them. Yeah, gosh, music has been so instrumental, uh, pardon the pun, for me in the <laughs> pandemic and just like navigating it. Luis, how do you envision people listening to music blocks outside the classroom? Well, the way that we made it, we made sure that it was really small and short so it could fit into obviously a classroom. But uh, even anecdotally, people are already telling us that they're listening to it with their kids on the way to work because they're just five minutes long so like it fits into whatever you're already doing with your kids teenagers uh or high school age kids but folks are telling us that even their like younger grade school kids are listening to it Uh, it sounds like an opportunity for some bonding too i think it's easy to bond over music each episode focuses on a different emotion happiness anger fear rebecca how did you choose the emotions So this is another place where Carla was very helpful. So thank you, Carla. Um, In developing the show, we were talking to a lot of different educators and Carla had her own sort of like focus group of people that are involved in music education. And they suggested the feelings wheel, uh, which is seven core emotions at the center of it. Uh, So those are happiness, sadness, anger, disgust, bad which is my personal favorite because it's so vague. Um, let's see. Uh, what are the other ones I'm missing? Oh, Louise? you were so close to convincing me so you'd close. memorize the, oh. the feelings wheel. I know. Oh, gosh. Um, I love disgust because I wouldn't think to place it on the wheel. Disgust. Yes. Yeah. Well, and actually, um, one of the other pieces of media that we thought a lot about was Inside Out, the Pixar film, uh, because a lot of the emotions that you see the characters in that film are are based off of the feelings wheel. So there's seven core emotions. I forgot two of them. But we also <laughs> decided in creating the show that a lot of those emotions are actually sort of negative, um, you know, like disgust, anger, sad. And so we felt like we were missing this core of emotion that was positive. And so we added good to the list. 
Well, this is the perfect segue. Thank you for providing it. We're going to dive into an episode that is titled Feeling Really Good. It's a new dawn. It's a new day. Getting a fresh start and feeling good about it is a powerful feeling. It can fill you with optimism. It's a new life for me. American singer Nina Simone knew how to express this. And I'm feeling good. In the song Feeling Good, she compares that feeling of rejuvenation to the vibrancy of nature itself. Fish in the sea, you know how I feel. River running free, you know how I feel. How do musicians capture the sound of feeling really good? That's what this episode of Music Blocks is all about. Get ready for inspiring words, confident-sounding grooves, and triumphant melodies. And I'm feeling good. It pays to have confidence, even if you're just starting out. In the song Old Town Road, Lil Nas X did that with a mix of hip-hop and country music sounds. Yeah, I'm gonna take my horse to the Old Town Road. I'm gonna ride till I can't no he says the song is about setting out to accomplish something big and sticking to your goals. When he says, can't nobody tell me nothing, it's about believing in himself. And that confidence paid off. This song became a huge success. Feeling confident is often about being comfortable in your own skin. Let's go, girls. Country singer Shania Twain wrote an anthem about that called Man, I Feel Like a Woman. I'm going out tonight. I'm all right. The vocal melody is a big part of what makes this song exciting. It starts at a lower register during the verse, moves up to higher notes as the chorus approaches, and climbs into a higher range in the chorus almost like an airplane taking flight. Feeling good often means having a sense of power. This is a Native American flute playing a victory song. The Comanche Nation lives on the southern Great Plains of the United States, and they've used the version of this music to celebrate a successful battle. You can hear how the vibrations and the quick pauses add to the thrill of the music. Having enough confidence to think you'll get past people who get in your way, that takes grit and optimism. Jimmy Cliff, a Jamaican reggae singer, wrote about this in his song, The Harder They Come. A song with lyrics like that might sound intense or aggressive. But the cool thing about The Harder They Come is it sounds totally relaxed. Like he's not even going to break a sweat worrying about what's coming at him. He feels good about his odds. good helps you to shake off the challenges that might come your way, to keep pushing forward. 
Janelle Monet sings about this in her song Tightrope. It's about moving forward, whatever they say about you. But it's not just the singing and the words. The swagger in this song comes from the drums, the bass, and the horn section. The groove itself exudes confidence. And that brings up an important point. Great musicians can make vibrant music without any lyrics at all. British composer Gustav Holst did this in his orchestral piece, The Planets. This is the section about the planet Jupiter. In mythology, the Roman god Jupiter was associated with power and liveliness. The woodwinds sound nimble, the brass and the cymbals sound bold, and the melody gives the music an air of triumph. It feels good to be Jupiter. How are you feeling after that? Really good? Okay, great, because that means this episode of Music Blocks has done its job. I love the range of listening. I mean, in that episode, Lil Nas X, Shania Twain, Gustav Holst, in just like a few minutes span, how the heck, Rebecca, did your team choose the music? I would be overwhelmed by the choices. Yeah, it's insane how much music there is in the world, (laughs) right? And that was something that we wanted to make sure to highlight in this process was the diversity of music. And that was something that we heard from Carla and from other educators that this can't just be one style, one genre, one culture. And so we didn't want it to fall to just one person. And we ended up creating an Excel spreadsheet. Okay. (laughs) And (laughs) we just, it was a lot of um, group brainstorming. So our team, as well as we got some help from uh, Monica Vischer and the folks at CPR Classical, the folks over at Indy 1023. So we collaborated with our Colorado Public Radio family and came up with uh, cues that we felt like would create a diverse listening experience and really explain the diversity of the feelings that we're talking about in the episodes. Yeah, I mean, I learned so much just in those f- quick few minutes, in part because of the choices you made about music. And, and Professor, I'm interested, uh, beyond the podcast, how important is music selection in music education? Oh, it's really important. I think um, tapping into relevance for students so that they feel like they're being heard and understood. I think there's like this validating element to that. Mm. And then along with that, I think taking them to other places, like other kind of cultural music that we might've listened to or to into the classical realm. But I think that might have really supported them like being available to listen. Okay, you acknowledge music that I connect with, that I find relevant and validating, and I'll listen to some other choices along with that. So I think that's really important to have that range of diverse um, genres to to listen to. In a way, you've got to walk them in the door with something that they connect with. And then... And then you surprise them with all of the things they don't perhaps know yet or aren't exposed to. Yes. Uh Was there a a eureka moment for you, something you learned, Luis, in putting this podcast together about music or music education or your own emotions? I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, I think all of us 
mean the global all of us, you, me, Rebecca, everyone listening, we're all, we all love music. And this project sort of helped me reconnect with that, mm. you know, just understanding that, sure, maybe your mom forces you to learn piano and trumpet or not, but we, we listen to music our entire lives, you know, and it plays a part in the way that we feel, obviously. And uh, it helped me reconnect with that, just hearing all the different genres of music, thinking about them in the context of the emotions that we're feeling. And even within our team, like Rebecca was saying, where, you know, we're like, oh, this is too much of a bummer. We have too many bummer episodes. We need one more feeling good episode. Mm-hmm. We're just living life, listening to music, and just going through it. It's a good gig if you can get it. (laughs) Rebecca, did you have an aha moment putting this broadcast together? I think similarly, it changed the way that I listened to music. Driving from here or there, listening to the radio, I started really pinpointing, like, what emotion is this making me feel? It did help me get back in touch with my feelings. Hmm. And a really nice way. And I think mm-hmm. the the fear episode includes Will You Love Me Tomorrow by the Shirelles. Will and you still love me tomorrow? Yes. Beautiful. Yes. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, listening to that song, I was like, oh, this is a love song. <laughs> and then I realized like that song is about fear and that needs to get in that episode. Oh, wow. So it's been a nice way for, I, I hope it is for listeners. It's definitely been for me to get back in touch with, with my feelings. That's so interesting. I've heard that song for years and never thought of that. Right, it's fear of loss. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been a blast, and thank you so much for sharing the music and your feelings, your emotions with us. Thanks, Thank Ryan. you, Ryan. Thanks, Ryan. Rebecca Romberg and Luis Antonio Perez host and produce Music Blocks, a music appreciation podcast from CPR's Audio Innovation Studio. Carla Aguilar is the education advisor. She's director of music education at Metropolitan State University in Denver, and you can listen to Music Blocks everywhere you get your podcasts. And that's Colorado Matters for today and for 2021. With thanks to our team, Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner. And I'm Nathan Heffel. Here's to a happy and safe new year. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. KRCC.